0: We're going to do our Bible study this morning. I want to invite you to join me in the book of Job. Job chapter 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, and 37. And I'm serious. (laughs) Okay, Take your Bibles and head over to that section of Scripture that we're going to just highlight a few of the different passages. This week I was reading of some letters that were sent to pastors from children within their congregations. And the children had a variety of different letters and one-item lines that they wrote their pastor. One child said this, Dear Pastor, please say in your sermon, Peter Peterson has been a good boy all week. Sincerely, Peter Peterson, age nine. Another child, you said in your sermon, you asked the question, are there any devils on earth? I think there may be one in my class, said Carla. Here's another child, said, "Uh, you said that God loves everybody, but he never met my sister. Sincerely yours, Arnold. Dear pastor, I'm sorry I can't leave more money in the plate, but my father didn't give me a raise in my allowance. Could you please have a sermon on parents giving raises in the children's allowance? Love, Patty. Here's another one. In your sermon, you talked about heaven. I would like to go to heaven someday because I know my brother won't be there. Signed, Stephen. I think a lot, dear pastor, I think a lot more people would come to your church if you moved it to Disneyland. (laughs) Lauren, Uh, please say a prayer for our little league team. We need God's help or a new pitcher. Thank you. My father says I should learn the Ten Commandments, but I don't think I want to because we have enough rules in our house already. Signed, Joshua. Here's one from a little child. Dear Pastor, I liked your sermon on Sunday, especially when you said, it is finished. Signed, Ralph. (laughs) Um... I think you're going to feel that way when I get to this one, okay? We are studying a section in the, in the, in the sermons, uh, the speeches that are given by Job's friends. If you remember the setting, Job has several friends that have come and sit a week with him, and then they start speaking. Three of them have spoken several times already. Now there's another man that has never been mentioned before. His name is Elihu. He is going to speak. When we look at his passage, there is a long portion of a given. In fact, his speech that he gives in this section is longer than 12 other books of the Old Testament, 17 books of the New Testament. What he says is longer than any set of speeches by all three of the men given in in an order of their first speech, their second speech. What he says is in chapter 32, verse 18, he says, I am full of words and he is. He is going to speak this lengthy sermon. He reminds me of a story of a young man being told by his college president that, hey, there's a church about an hour or two away that their preacher isn't there this week, and they called us at our Bible college and asked if we could send somebody to go and to speak at the Bible college. So if you would like, you can fill the pulpit there on that Sunday morning. So the young man in enthusiasm went to this small little country church, and when he got there, he was setting things up, and then the people started coming. In came one person, sat about the middle of the church and that was it. Just that one older gentleman. So the young man at the time, he's looking and it's time to get started. He walks back to the older gentleman who happened to be a a rancher in that region. And they started talking for a few minutes. Then he said, well, you know, what do you think I should do? And the rancher said, well, I don't know much about this preaching. I never went to school like you to learn all about how churches should run. But if I go out in the field and I see one steer out there, at least I feed that one steer. And so the young man said, great. He ran up to the pulpit, started the service, and he preached, and he preached, and he preached, and he preached for an hour and a half. When he was all done, he was so proud of himself, he walked down and shook the old man's hand, and he said, sir, so what would you think? Well, I don't know what they teach you there in that Bible college, but, you know, if I go out in the field and I see one steer out there, I feed them, but I don't give them the whole load all to themselves. Okay. Now, that's what Elihu is going to do with with Job. He's going to give him a load. He is just going to unload on him. In fact, we don't know much about Elihu. We can look and say, was he a relative of Abraham? You have some information there that you could look up. But he does make it very clear at the beginning of his speech in chapter 32. He says that I'm the younger one. I'm the youngest of everybody here. He says that a couple times. He's, He's held back speaking because out of respect for those who have, who have spoken ahead of times. So he never interrupts. But when he starts speaking, he doesn't seem to stop. He's long-winded. Folk, if you read the section, you're going if to, you, if, if you're like, and this is the pot call and the kettle black. I read it and go, oh my word, you could have said it in, 20, you know, in half that time. And so when you look at it, basically to outline his sermon, and the way you figure out how, where he breaks is he pauses every so often and says, Job, what do you think? And Job never speaks. And so we, we get those breaks. And if you're going to break it down, you would have the first two chapters in this section. Chapter 32 and 33. That's his first sermon. Then his second, his second portion is going to be chapter 34. And then his third portion is going to be chapter 35. Then chapter 36 and 37 is the fourth sermon all put together. But you know, just to, as an add-on, actually the bulk of what he says is going to be in chapter 37. That's where he gets to the real meat and the heart of the matter. The other thing that strikes me about what he, when he speaks is he's really angry. He starts off at the very beginning. Look at verses 32, verses 1 through 5. Just read it through right now. You will see that it says four different times his wrath is kindled. His anger is at a peak. He's very upset with Job. And he's going to, as he speaks, he says, Job, I am mad at you. I'm upset because you have tried to justify yourself. You have said that you don't have any sin and you don't think God has treated you fairly. And Job has said that in the last two chapters. Job has said God has been unfair. And so Eli, who is upset with him, even though Job hasn't sinned, Job has been challenging and saying, I want to speak to God. And so Elihu, he's harsh with Job. He's going to say, Job, I'm upset. Look at verse 2. Then he's going to say to the other men, you'll see it in verse 3. He says, I'm upset with you because you have falsely accused Job of secret sins and you have no proof. And I'm upset with you. And so he starts off and when he speaks, he is coming from an irritation that is never wise. You know that, right? That when you speak in anger, you may say things you don't mean? Well, that's what he's doing. I want you to catch a phrase that he uses in verse 18, if you look down into it. He makes the comment that he says, I am going to speak, and I feel like a wineskin about to burst. What he means by that is, and they would take wineskins, and they would, they would typically put new wine in new wineskins because they would expand. That is, the wineskin and the wine would expand, the grape juice would expand together. And if you put a a new wine in an old wineskin, it's already reached its limits. And he says, I feel like one of those wineskins that is being filled with something new to say, and I'm ready to burst. I've just got to, it's going to gush out, and it gushes out. And what he says is really, really potent. He is going to say several times, listen to me, listen to me listen to what I have to say. And he says it multiple times. Some have concluded he's very arrogant, not just angry, that he's insistent. Everybody pays attention. Shh, Quiet. I'm talking. But what happens in this is he makes it clear that what he is about to say, look at verse 14. He says in verse 14, the essence of what I'm about to say differs from what has already been said. I have something new to say. I have something that is challenging. And so as you go through, he says, you know, God has directed my words and I'm going to answer in a way that you guys haven't answered before. What we do learn and what we do conclude is that what he says, some of it, some of what he says appears to be helpful and Job doesn't have an answer to it. Job doesn't respond or retort or refute what's been said, though he's done it with the other three guys every time. This time he doesn't, he's he's kind of silenced. And it seems like what happens here is what Elihu says is preparatory to what God starts speaking and what God starts saying when God shows up and starts talking right after this. So it's got Job silenced and it's got Job prepared. It kind of reminds me of this. Jobs' whole situation reminds me that when we were in high school, we would get these cars that would run pretty good, but we wanted to make them run even faster and better. We would change the jets and the carbs and the you know the air input. We would jack up the back end so it was always going downhill. Um, we would you know put the fuzz on the back window, you know hang the things, you know get the car really fancy. The car worked great. But we wanted to just fine-tune it to make it really wow. It's kind of like what some of you do with your computer. It works fine. It handles, but you want to get even more memory to make it faster. Or you want to get more of, more of the, the internet speed and increase it to even be able to download stuff. In fact, Job is like this. The way Elihu talks to him. Job has not sinned. It's very clear through the text. He has not sinned at all. Job has done well despite losing 10 kids, losing everything, and he's doing good. He's even said, though he slay me, I will trust in him. Even He said, till I die, I will not remove my my integrity. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to live and trust God. But at the same time, he could use some fine-tuning. He could use a little bit of improvement. He could get his speed going a little bit better when it comes to his internet. Because what he has done... Even though he doesn't sin, he has gotten to the point where he's questioning and challenging God. Not in rebellion. Not in in a verbal sense of saying, God, I don't trust you anymore. But in a sense of, God, I I want you to come right here and talk to me. I want you to explain yourself to me. And he's gotten to a borderline arrogance, disrespect that really has Elihu upset. In fact, God will rebuke... Uh, Job Ford in a few moments. So it seems like Elihu is trying to fine tune Job's carburetor, trying to increase his spiritual internet speed to say, yes, you're trusting the Lord, which many of you do, but you can even do better. You can get even closer to the Lord through your trials and troubles. You could be stronger in your faith if you. And that's where Elihu goes with his four sermons. What he says in the four sermons, he shares some truths to push, Eli, uh, push Job a little bit further in his spiritual life. And I'm going to divide his four sermons into four points. Four statements that he makes that are challenging to a believer like you. Somebody who wants to worship the Lord. Somebody who wants to follow the Lord. But at moments, there's a battle, there's a struggle. At moments, there's a question, why is God doing what he's doing? At a moment, there might be giving in to discouragements or troubles or problems. And you're following the Lord, but things could be tweaked a little bit. Watch what Elihu says to help tweak Job's heart. In the first sermon, he says this to him, When it feels like heaven is crushing you, God is calling you. When it feels like heaven is crushing you, God is still calling you. Remember this, Job. Remember that despite what happens. See, what happens in, in this chapter, starting with verse 30, uh, chapter 32 all the way through it, is Job has been saying, why, why, why? And Elihu quotes Job. Jump down to verse 8. You'll get the gist of it. He's going he's gonna to make this comment in chapter 33, down to verse 8. Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I heard your voice Of your words saying this, I heard you say, chapter 33, verse 9, I am clean without transgression. I am innocent. Neither is there any iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. God counts me for his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He marks all my paths. And then Elihu responds, Behold, behold, Job, you have said these things. And he's basically, Job, what you've been complaining about since chapter 13 is God is silent. God hasn't come and explained Himself to me, and Elihu is going to say, "Job, that's just not true. Job, you need to realize that that even though, even though you have not committed iniquity, you are borderline doing something wrong." Let, let me see if I can back up and re, and point out something. When Satan attacks. This is a pattern that he usually uses. He usually starts with doubts, and then he tries to get you to disobey. We can go all the way back into the Old Testament and watch this pattern, that he's talking to Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he gets her to doubt. He challenges her with simple statements. Yeah, did God really say this? can't, Can't you eat of all the trees in the garden? As if God is holding out on you, Eve. And as a result of her buying this and thinking, well, maybe God isn't dealing with me the best he could be dealing with me. Maybe God is holding out. Then that leads her to the point where she disobeys. She denies. She, do, she does what God has told her. And the serpent beguiled me. I did eat the meat. It's the same pattern that is done in Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is there in the wilderness, hasn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. Satan comes And he starts tempting him. In the first temptation, it's as if he is saying, you deserve better than what God has done for you. God has not provided anything for you. Therefore, why don't you speak? You're the son of God. Speak and let the stones become bread. You shouldn't have to live this way. You shouldn't. This just doesn't seem fair. You're the son of God, since you be the son of God. Then he says, since you are the son of God, cast yourself off the temple. Surely God's angels will come. Surely God won't let you fall crashing to the ground, again, doubting God's provisions, God's leading, God's care. In fact, if you fall down and worship me, I will give you what you're after. You're after to get all the kingdoms of the world underneath you. That's what's predicted. My way is easier than God's ways. Well, we know what the Lord did. The Lord rebuked Satan, told him to go away. But there is this pattern that appears, and if you follow through the Bible, and you follow in your own life, oftentimes the attack is doubt God, doubt God, doubt God, question God. That leads into disobedience. That leads into denial. Well, that's where Job is close to. Job is doubting. God's care, God's provisions, God's counting me as an enemy. God has shackled me. God has has put me into real binds, and I don't understand why. He hasn't crossed into disobedience. He hasn't stepped down into denial. But he's borderline close. And Elihu is saying to him, listen, you keep saying you want to meet with God. You want to meet with God. You want to meet with God. Why isn't God answering? And what he does in chapters 32 and 33, he says, Job, God has been speaking to you. God hasn't been ignoring in fact he uses the phrase that you see in verse 14 he spoke once Yea, he spoke twice it's a it's an old testament Semitic euphemism like Yea, God hates six things Yea, seven it's an it's a point of emphasis that God has been speaking to you God has been trying to talk to you God has been calling you to get closer to him and he points out God spoke to you through your dreams Look at verses 15 and 18, where he makes that comment. He says to him, he says in verse, In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls from men, in slumberings upon the bed, bed, he says, Then he opens the ears of the men, he seals their instructions, that he may withdraw men from his purpose, that is, he may hold back men from doing what they want, is the idea, and hide pride or get greater pride in their life. And so he says, this has been happening to you. God has spoken. You talked about it earlier, that there was dreams and the, and the spirit, but you have come to a point where you said, you remember back, and I forget, I should have put the reference, and I forget right about now. Right around chapters 13, 14, 15, Job says, I don't want to dream anymore. I don't want to dream. But God had been speaking to him. In fact, he says, and God spoke to you through your sufferings. Verse 19. He goes on, he says, Job, he he is chastened also with pain upon his bed and the multitude of his bones with strong pain so that his life abhors bread. He doesn't want to eat. His soul, he doesn't want to have any meat. His flesh is consumed away, it cannot see. His bones, they stick out. Yea, your soul draws near to the grave. And he says, this is how God has spoken to you, how, how God is calling you through your sufferings. Then he makes another comment. He says, in fact, God has spoken through messengers. Verse 23, and some of you may have an interpretation, um, uh, a translation that says angels. The word is malik. Sometimes it's used for a human messenger. Sometimes it's an angelic messenger. I think in this text it's the human. But he says God has spoken through a messenger and through interpreters those who have come that uniquely have spent time with you and they've, they've tried to explain things and God's talking. And so you, who they are, men or angels. His point is, Job, these are, and I think they're men, they're individuals who what they can do, as he mentions in verse 24, they can guide you. They can, you know, he, the, the, the he, those people, gracious unto him, deliver him from going down to the pit. Uh, he goes on, he talks about how, verse 26, he shall pray unto God and he'll be favorable to you. There are individuals who pray for your restoration, who try to help you out. And so, could who be referring to himself? That's probably the case. But here he is saying, you know, God has spoken. God hasn't left you out in a lurch. You keep saying God isn't talking to you. But his point is, Job, you don't need to hear more from God or get a direct audience with God. You need to listen to what God has already delivered. That's like some individuals sometimes that say, God, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? But they don't pick up his word. They don't listen. They 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 don't take into account how God is leading in the events and the circumstances. But they want something extra special for themselves because they think they deserve it. And Elihu is saying, listen, in this day and age, and it was true, in that day and age, God gave supernatural revelation at times through the prophets, through peoples, or through angels. We we know that today we don't need that. We have the completed word of God. But God also uses people at times. God uses suffering at times to speak to hearts, to draw, and to say, I'm trying to bring you closer to me. Listen to my word. I'm trying to use your suffering to bring you closer to me. Listen to the suffering. I'm trying to use others in your family, others in your church community to speak to you, to draw you closer to me. But you're saying, no, I want, I want a one-on-one with God, and he gets rebuked. And all three he mentions in this context, the dreams, the messengers, the pain, all three of them are given for a reason. It's given in verse 29. He talks about how, lo, all these things work God oftentimes with men to bring back his soul from the pit, to be enlightened with the light of the living. Mark well, o Job, hearken unto me, hold your peace, I'm going to speak. And if you have anything to say to answer, go ahead and answer. But he's said very clearly, God uses people. God uses his word. God uses suffering to keep people back from getting into more trouble, from going further into sin. God uses those events to try to get people to take a long look. Job, look beyond this, what you're suffering. Look at what's in the future. God uses these to draw you closer. This this is exactly what happened to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was afflicted in the flesh. And he says, three times I prayed to the Lord that he would remove the thorn in the flesh. I remind you. That according to Paul's own words, he said, God gave me this thorn in the flesh, lest I should be exalted above measure. Lest I become proud of my ministries. Lest I become proud that God has spoken through me. God gave me a thorn in the flesh. God gave me suffering to keep me from sin, to keep me more reliant upon him. And God said to me, My grace is sufficient to thee, for for my strength is is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rejoice in my infirmities. Does God use people to keep you back from sin? Does God use suffering sometimes to keep you humble? Does God use his word to guide and direct? And Job would be saying, Yeah, but I want to hear from God directly. I want God to speak to me as if I deserve something better. And Elihu is saying, now wait a minute. When life is crushing you, listen to the still, small voice of God that may be speaking through his word, through other people, or through the sufferings you're going through. Listen up. Listen up. That's the first sermon. And he says, Job, if you have anything to respond, Job, come on, speak up. Job doesn't. So he goes into sermon number two. Sermon number two is a more deeper, <laughs> that's redundant, is a deeper challenge to the believer who is trying to really be drawn close to God. He says, when it feels like life is unfair, you need to remember this, Job. God is always, always, always just. Chapter 34. Job hasn't spoken. And so Elihu again quotes Job. And he says in verse 9, look at verse 9, and he's basically, he's quoting Job. He says, Job, you said in the past, it doesn't pay to serve God. It doesn't pay to serve God. And so he says, you know, I think you've been very, very irreverent toward God. you've been scorning. You've been eating. The words of scorning is the idea that he mentions in verse 7. And he says, You know, Job, I want you to understand this one thing. Look at verses 10, 11, and 12, the heart of the message. He says to him in this section, chapter 34, verse 10, Therefore hearken unto me, you men of all of you, hearken unto me, far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should commit any, any, any idea, any iniquity. He goes on, for the work of a man shall he render unto him; the ca- and cause every man to find according to his ways. Yea, surely God will not do wickedly; neither will the Almighty pervert judgment. And that's where Job has been borderline, saying, "I don't know. God has been unfair. God has been mistreating me. God isn't doing totally what he you know being being just." And Elihu, in his anger, says, "That's wrong." God is always just. He never does wrong. You may be trusting the Lord, but you need to also be praising Him and thanking Him for your trials. this This isn't unjust. But, folk, let's be honest. This takes real maturity. This isn't for the average Joe. What Elihu is saying is for the mature believer. He is saying, you need to come to a point where you don't just say, God, I'm going to trust you, but in the middle of your trials, you will give thanksgiving and you will remember all things work together for good. That's what he's getting at. But that's not easy to remember when all of a sudden you're the one in the middle of surgery. You're the one in the middle of a family cancer battle. You're the one with losing a job. Is God made a mistake? Has God bailed on me? And he is saying you need to remember not only to trust, but to be thankful in the middle of the trial. To say my God is a good God, even if it causes the pain and the loss of a loved one. That's hard. But that's where Elihu is. He then goes on to magnify the Lord. And this is one of the first sections that he does it. Verse 11, he talks about how God is so just in his rewarding people. We just read that. Verse 13, he makes the comment that God is in charge of everything. Who gave him charge? He did it himself. He's in charge. He's sovereign. He makes a comment in verses 14 and 15. He says, if God set his heart upon a man, that he goes on. And if he gathered unto himself, he took away everybody's breath. He gathered his spirit and all breath, all flesh shall perish. You and I only his point is we exist we breathe our next breath by the goodness of God that's it he's saying God is good to us that we can breathe God is good to us that we just don't go blind God is good to us that all of a sudden we just don't fall down dead God is good to us in giving us life and then he has a whole section about God is fair God is just. He's not like worldly leaders who, are, who show favoritism because of money or because of bribes. And he says, God is just. God doesn't treat people, anyone, in an unjust, unfair way. And so he, then he makes a comment. This is interesting. He says down in chapter 34, jump down to verse 33. He says, um, should it be according to thy mind? Job, should God act? Should God conduct himself according to what you think, the way he should work? Verse 33, Will he recompense it whether, he, whether you refuse or whether you choose and not I? Sh- should God say, Oh, I am so sorry, Job. I didn't mean to upset you. I'm sorry, Job. I, I, you know, I, I guess I, I shouldn't have taken all ten kids. Should God treat us like we're the consumer market and he has to keep us buying him? And so Elihu who is challenging Job that says, listen, God doesn't have to follow the polls. God doesn't have to be, you know, seeing what works in selling his religious product. God is God. He does what he does because he's God. He's God and you need to trust him. And you need to rely upon him. And because he is so great, watch what he tells Job you should do. He says, surely it is meat. This is necessary. This is the appropriate thing to be said unto God. I have borne chastisement. I will not offend anymore. God, if you were correcting me, then, then God, can I rephrase that phrase? Search me and try me and see if there be... That's what Elihu is saying, Job, you're insistent that you aren't right, and and you could be. But your response to God should be, search me, O God, and know my heart today. That's what the appropriate response to this just God should be. That if I have done iniquity, I will do it no more. It's called repentance. Because of this great God, that's what Elihu is encouraging. Job, examine your heart. And if you, like anybody else, in trials and troubles, I'm not saying it becomes, it comes because of sin, but surely the righteous person will always bow the knee and say, God, if there is iniquity in my heart, I will repent. That's his wisdom advice. That's what he's telling him. I had a professor that was out in Minnesota, Calvary, uh, Central Seminary, then helped to find Calvary Seminary, Dr. Warren Van Hetlow. Wonderful teacher, wonderful man of God, just one of the most godly men I've ever met in my life. He had a phrase, thinking about God being just. And he used this all the I mean all the time. When years ago he came and spoke once here, you know, and I asked him, Yo, how you doing, Dr. Van? Yo, how was the trip? He answered here. He answered in the hallways. He If you asked him how he was doing, his phrase was always this, better than I deserve. Folk, we are doing better than we deserve. It is by the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. And Elihu has it right. So Elihu said to him, he says, what you need to do is when it feels like God is crushing you, what you need to do is remember God is still calling you. Look for the voice of God. When in your troubles it feels like life is unfair, remember God is always just. Then his third sermon is this. When life is hard, remember God is not hard-hearted. God is not cruel. God is not unkind. He goes on, he makes the comment, okay? He says, hey, Job, um, this is kind of what you've been saying, Job, starting with thir- chapter 35. He says, uh, thinkest thou this to, to be right? My righteousness is more than God's? For you said, what advantage will it be unto you? And what profit shall I have if I be cleansed of all my sin? Um, you know, basically, Job, you've been saying up to this point, what good is it to live righteously, If we suffer, Uh, what good is there to be fessed up to God? If I'm going through these problems, Job didn't say this exactly, but this is where Elihu is was understanding Job this time and saying, Job, this is what you've been hinting at. This is where you've been borderline. And so he reminds them and he says, Job, uh, any situation, whether you live for the Lord or whether you do wrong, you're not going to change God. God is unchangeable. And he makes that comment in verse 6. If you sin, what what do you do against God? Or if your transgressions be multiplied, what do you do against God? What, What have you done to change God? If you be righteous, what have you added to God? Or what receives he of your hand? So your righteousness or your rebellion, they don't change God. God is always God. God is always just. God is always holy. God is always right. He's above everything. He's above it all. But he goes on, he says that and and you and I need to remind yourself it doesn't mean God is insensitive. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care about us. In fact, he's going to start going on and he's going to talk about the wicked people. The way the wicked people, they respond and they say, Okay, then I can do whatever I want. And he's going to talk about how they're foolish. How they just think, well, since God doesn't change and you know I can do whatever I want, they're wrong. They've swung the pendulum. They've, they've thought that you know they that God made them and they can just go and do what they want. And they are absolutely wrong. And he makes a comment about those people, how they they go away from the Lord, they get away from the Lord, and they don't call upon God in their troubles. And he makes a statement about those people. Not calling upon God as if to say, you who are righteous, this is what you should be doing. Don't do what the unrighteous do. They refuse to call upon God. They don't get his help in the trial. As if to say, Job, you are righteous, you should be calling upon God because here's what God will do. God will give you songs in the night. That's where this phrase comes from. It comes from verse 10 where he is saying, this is what the ungodly, they don't get from God how god in the middle of the trials and the troubles yes he isn't changed by them he isn't he isn't blemished by our sin or or he isn't hurt by our troubles he is but but he is still not hard hearted he is still holy but he cares enough that if you call, not like the, the lost, they won't do it. The, the wicked, they won't do it. They don't get the songs in the night. As if to say, he would help you, Job. If you call, he will give you songs in the night. The songs in the night is the idea that, that God will give you great peace in the middle of the trial. God will give you great strength in the middle of the trial. God will give you great insight in the middle of the trial. And Job, you could have increased your wisdom. You could have increased your, your spiritual praise and spirit, though you're struggling. It would have been enhanced if you had called for God instead of questioning why God. Tough stuff. Tough stuff. But he's reminding us that in the New Testament, Paul had this experience. Paul and Silas are in jail. They're beaten physically. They don't understand why they're in the jail. But in the middle of the night, what does God give them? Literally, he gives them songs in the night. And they're praising God. And as a result of their praising, does God do a spectacular work because of their response? Do you remember what happens? Earthquake. Jail doors swing open. Jailer comes running in, kneels down and says... What must I do? And God does a wonderful work because Paul and Silas were responding with a rejoicing in the midst of their suffering. That's hard to do. Amen, amen, amen. But that's what he is saying needs to be done. And so he's saying, now, Job, you need to you need pause. God spoke through the sufferings. God can give... Su- Let me ask you this series. What good comes out of such horrible, horrible experiences. What good comes to lose the job? What good comes to lose his social security? What good comes to lose his friends? What good could possibly come from Job being covered in boils? What is there anything good that can come out of troubles and trials and sufferings? Yeah, maybe, maybe... Maybe a heart attack teaches us what really counts in life. Maybe all of a sudden, the loss of possessions, the house burning, teaches us that the things of these world, this world are simply things. And too often they dominate us. Maybe, maybe it's true. Maybe it's true when all of a sudden, you, you hit a crisis with your health, that all of a sudden you realize, you know what's really important in life? is not all the hobbies, but it's family. It's people relationships. Maybe the sufferings help us to appreciate we have this moment. We have this day to live. Instead of, instead of doing what we're caught up with, our, you know, uh, <laughs> we in this society that we have to record everything how about just putting it down and live in the moment and appreciate the moment? Maybe the sufferings would teach us to pray like we've never prayed before. In Grief Share, several shared this past week that because of the loss of a loved one, that taught them to pray for family like they never prayed before. It taught the seriousness of praying, praying for somebody's health needs praying for others who are in trials and troubles. Maybe the, maybe the suffering we go through would cause us to appreciate the promises of God more than what we do. Maybe, maybe what they would do is the trials and the troubles would help us to rely upon Him since we can't rely upon our own physical abilities anymore. Maybe God needs to bring us to that point. Like one of, our, one of our senior saints years ago said to my wife when she was sitting with her and she was in her last couple of days of cancer, she said to her, to her, she said, Debbie, you know what's so really exciting about this terminal cancer I have? It has taught me how to look forward to heaven and to let go of the things that I used to spend so much time worrying about. You know, Not that ironing is bad, but is it worth all the hassle? Is, is the marks on the floor, are they worth all the frustrations that sometimes we get out of those things? Maybe. Maybe the trials will help us to be anxious for heaven. Not just think, oh, someday, but it's, I'm anxious for it. By the way, can I ask this question? Does arthritis make you look forward to the resurrection in a glorified body? It gives a whole new perspective on a new body. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, the trials and the troubles that we go through, maybe it gets our minds off of stuff and to think about what's really important is the souls of my family and friends. And that instead of really being worried about, and again, I'm not saying we should be bad stewards, but instead of being all flustered, about how the garden is or the driveway is or those... What about our neighbor's spiritual eternal destiny? What about laying up treasures? What about becoming a testimony to God's grace to other people who are watching the way you respond to the trials and the troubles and the difficulties day by day? Do you think God would put a trial in your life so you could be a better testimony? There's a story that comes out of the book Breaking the Power by Liberty Savard. She tells about how she was, as a young lady, she was a very, very miserable teenager and young college age, a young adult. She was mean, angry, impatient with others. She thought she could speak her mind because her mind was so much better than everybody else's. And she was just basically a, a mean girl that people didn't want to get around. She gets born again. God is opening up a ministry in her life, and she's talking about how God is giving her opportunity to share the Bible. And she's sharing the Bible in her, with her newfound faith in the city where she is living, away from where, her, where she grew up. And it dawns on her, you know, I'm so excited to share the gospel and tell people about my new faith in Christ and how he has changed me. But all those people that I grew up with, my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, I've not shared the gospel with them. And they only know me as a miserable, angry, negative, pessimistic young adult. The the way I was when I was a teen and lived there as a college student before Christ did work. And she prayed, God, please give me an opportunity. Give me an opportunity to share my faith with them, with my relatives that I very infrequently see. And then it dawned on her, the occasion's coming up. Her parents were celebrating their 25th wedding anniversary. They were going to have a party and all these relatives would be invited to this party. And they would have this meal. They would have this time. And she would be able to show how she has become a gracious, pleasant, likable person that people would want to be around. So she's praying. And she's praying. I'm going to pick up her story and just read some of it. She's saying... She said this, she prayed that this day would reveal to everyone in her family how God can change a life. Although she lived an hour away from where the party venue was taking place, she got ready in plenty of time when the day came. One last spray to her hair to set it and she would be off. Except then she realized that she had grabbed bug spray from under her sink instead of hairspray. Quickly she showered again, but now there was no time to do her hair. So she hopped in her car, and it wasn't long before she realized the car was overheating. She turned off the air conditioning, got all sweaty, but still something was wrong. She had to stop every so often, add water. She had to stop and add transmission fluid. She finally got to the party a tiny bit late frizzy hair, oily hands, red face, dirty dress. She would just take a few minutes to freshen up, so she hurried into the restroom. However, there was a problem. In, her, in the heat of her car, her large jar of face cream had exploded inside her purse, and everything in her overnight bag, including her makeup, her hairbrush, her hairspray, and her clothes that she was going to change into was now covered in white goop. She was so upset. She wanted to make such a good impression on her relatives. And she had prayed so hard for days, but now everything had gone wrong. She stood there by the bathroom sink, saying, Oh God, how could you let this happen? How can, how can all these things go wrong? Her only option was to just go out and enjoy the party, looking like a wreck. There was nothing else she could do. She determined to have a great time and laugh. Afterwards, Towards the end of the party, one of her relatives caught her and wanted to talk to her privately. Liberty, a few of us were talking about you. We wondered, what happened to you? A few years ago, you were so angry and miserable, and here you are now. You had such a bad day before the party, but you were so cheerful, and it seemed like nothing seems to bother you now. What has happened to you? Someone said, you've got religion. Could you tell me about that and how I can get it? Liberty said, At that moment, it was as if God was smiling at me and saying, I answered your prayers. Well done, daughter. Does God ever do that? Does God ever put us in situations? And Elihu is saying, Job, you can do better. Job, you can do better. And he gives him that thought, several thoughts. He said, when it feels like heaven is crushing you, remember God is calling you. When it feels like life is unfair, God is still just. Remember that. When it feels like life is hard, our God is not hard-hearted. He can give you the songs in the night. Then he makes a final statement, which is your last two chapters. When life is unsettling, God is never unseated. When life is unsettling, remember God is not unseated. Chapters 36 and 37 are amazing. Absolutely amazing. Throughout this section, Elihu is reminding them how powerful God is. He just works through the whole works through section. Four times he's going to say, Behold! Listen, listen, listen. Watch. Listen to this about God. He's going to highlight it. Then he goes on and he talks in the first 25 verses about how God has power over people. And he's going to list all kinds of people. He's going to list how God has power over the righteous. He watches. Look at verse 7. He watches over the righteous. If the, wicked do, if the righteous does wrong, God will come to them. Verses 8 through 10. God will come to them and say, hey, you're doing wrong. And he'll explain. He'll tell them what they're doing wrong so that they get right. And then if they repent, look at verse 11. If they repent, he's going to restore them. And if they continue to rebel, He says, okay, God's going to bring chastisement. No matter who they are. Rich, poor, kings, princes, he's going to do this. This is the way God works with his children. He has power over all people. And he goes on, then he talks about how God has power over all creation. And this is very important to Job to be talking about creation because there was a tornado that took out his kids. There was fires that came down that took up some of his crops. So it wasn't just evil people that afflicted him. There was nature that seemed to come against him. And when God goes through this section... It's an amazing section. Just, I'm, I'm going to do a quick. He says, here's how great God is God makes the small drops of rain. He talks about the small drops of water. He talks about how God spreads out the clouds in verse 27. He talks about how God scatters the lightning, that he moves it about. He talks about how God covers the bottom of the seas. By the way, we don't even know what's at the bottom of the sea, but God covers them. He talks about in this passage how God gives food in abundance, even to the wild animals that we don't even see. God is feeding them. God is taking care of those possums and those skunks and those different things that we don't want to see. Okay? But God is providing for them. God, he goes on, and it's chapter 37, seems, look at the first couple of verses, it seems as if there's an approaching storm, a vicious storm, a powerful storm, And it seems as Elihu is describing when this storm is approaching, possibly that's what's really happening. Because remember, God's going to show up in the next few minutes. and He's going to come out of the storm. And so it seems as if the clouds, he starts talking about the great power of nature by this powerful storm. And he talks about how God's voice thunders marvelously. That idea of God, it's it's just, it's amazing. It goes right through you. He talks about how god is in his his breath he says to the snow fall on earth and god is in total control and folk listen we get an inch of snow and what do we do seriously an inch of snow and all the bread is gone in the stores it's an absolute panic we don't know how to drive in it we don't know what to do in it we just go our lives fall apart but god is in control of the snow he says this comment, he says, God controls the small rains, the great rains. He says that God, he, the cycles of the beasts. it's hibernation. God's in charge of the wild critters that we don't want to have any, we don't want to encounter a grizzly. But God knows their hibernation cycles. He talks about how God sets the weather patterns out of the north and out of the south. This isn't something that evolved. This is something that was created by God. He talks in this text about how God freezes the waters. You want to see God's breath? Go to Minnesota next, you know, in in January. You'll see frozen water. He talks about how he loads the cloud. He he stuffs it full of moisture. You know, like a a, a wineskin being stuffed. And it stays there. You know, until God says to let it rain. He talks about the swirling patterns of the clouds. That you can see them from above swirling. How did Elihu... Get on AccuWeather. How does he, from where he is in that day, understand the systems of the clouds and the patterns? It's an amazing chapter. He's, th- this statement, if you want to underline a verse, this is the verse that he talks about where he says how God does this in verse 13. In the, the, it's amazing. He causeth it, nature, storms, every. He causeth it to come whether for correction or for his land or mercy. In other words, God controls the weather and it operates according to his purposes. God's in total control. Therefore, therefore, Job, this is what you should do. Hearken unto this, O Job. Stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Listen. Listen to what I have to say. And he goes on, and let's jump down a little bit, in verse 23. Touching the Almighty, we cannot find him out. He is beyond our searching. He is is so amazing. We don't understand everything about him. He is beyond our comprehension. How did he say it a few Sunday nights? That God, in his wisdom, is the coastline, and there's a whole new land to explore when it comes to God? There is so much to him. And so he says, We cannot find him out. We cannot understand in our in totality. He is excellent in power, verse 23. He is excellent in judgment. He is plenty in mercy. And then he concludes with this phrase. Okay, and, and, and let me re, re uh, translate it for you where it says, He will not afflict. The Hebrew word literally is, He will do you no harm, He will do you no violence. He doesn't do you bad. All things work together for That's Elihu's message. What a potent message. Talking about how great God is. And he's basically said, "Hey, Job, your life is unsettled, but God is not unseated. Remember this this week, Job. Job, calm down when 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 things are going and it's hard, God is not hard-hearted." Hey, Job, Job, God is not unfair to you. God is always just. Job, when you think that heaven has been silent, God's been calling you. God's been working in your life. And no matter what, you said you're trusting in the Lord. That's good. That's great. But here's the tune-up. Here's the getting the speed a little bit better in your internet. Here's for your heart, Job. You need to appreciate him. Not just trust him. You need to appreciate him. You need to, you need to be running to him, giving him praise, not questions. You need a bigger and better view of God. And that's where God's going to say this ditto to him in the last chapters of the book. True story. Dick Wilson was one of those who helped found a, a conservative semin, seminary in the early 1900s. It was called Princeton Theological Seminary. And it was very conservative at the time. Machen and Gresham and then Wilson were teachers there. And one of their students was Donald Gray Barnhouse, who after graduating came back. And he was invited to preach in the chapel, and he felt it was a great honor, but he was extremely intimidated. He was fine preaching before his church, but going back to where he studied and have his professors sit there listening was a tremendous, tremendous challenge to him. And it kind of unsettled him. I have had that experience just a few times. To go back and to preach in the seminary chapel. And professors being there. And I'm telling you. That was so. You you folk are not intimidating at all. Compared to those guys. Sitting in the front row. And sure enough. When you say something. They write it down. And I'm going. Oh what did I say wrong? What did I say wrong? So Barnhouse is talking about how he's preaching. And. Wilson was listening, 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 and at the end, Dr. Wilson walked up to him and he said, Donald, thank you for that message, shook his hands, and he told him this. He said, I make it a practice only once to come and hear former students preach, just one time. And I want to find out if they're a big godder or a little godder. Well, what do you mean, Doc? What do you mean by that? Well, people sometimes they have a little God, even preachers. They get upset, they get frustrated, they get discouraged, they're they're very, very people oriented and, and people pleasing because they're they're trying to, you know, work for the people. They have a little God. They get upset easily about provisions and responses and they 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 relay that to their church and the church people don't really trust in the promises and they, prayer isn't a priority with them because they have a little god a little view of god then there are the big godders that their whole goal in their ministry is preach the word and whatever happens happens we're going to trust the lord we're going to pray, we're going to rely on his promises and we're going to give out his word and we're just going to, we're going to rely upon him and serve him and do our best and just be faithful to this big God that we serve. And so there was this awkward pause and Barnhouse said, I didn't know if I should ask, but finally I said, Doc, where am I? He said, oh, it's obvious, obvious from your message, you're a big godder. And God will bless you in your ministry for it. And he said, he walked away, and Barno said, I flew back to my church you know, in my car because I was just like, wow, he, you know, my professor approved and then it dawned on him. He didn't need the approval of his professor. He needs the approval of he needs to be a big godder even in those moments. Can I ask you a question? Are you going to be a little godder or a big godder this week? Are you going to be one that when it comes to worship, little worship, big worship. When it comes to praying, little prayer, big prayer. When it comes to sharing the word of God, don't talk about God, talk about God. Share what you know. Obeying God or do your own thing. Which will you be this week? A little godder or a big Godder. From the text, what we should strive to be is a big Godder because we serve an amazing God. We serve a wonderful God. We serve a God who is so majestic that when you think about his creation, you think about his interaction with us, he's amazing. Folks, this isn't about us this morning, it's about God. How wonderful he is, how marvelous he is.